Heavenly Father, we thank You for the privilege of being here to utilize Your provision for us, Your grace provision. Help us not to take for granted this day, nor this place, nor everything that takes place here, because it all comes from Your grace. We pray that You will help us to focus our full attention upon Your mighty Word this evening. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. We spent most of Tuesday night focusing on the first part of this verse, and we will spend most of tonight focusing on the first part of this verse. Here is verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Oh, I, uh, before we get into this, there was something I was going to say. I saw the news tonight, and it helped me uh, to think about how to how many people are putting things in perspective because of the tornadoes that hit about six states. Uh, there was this was there were more tornadoes than ever recorded. There was over 600, and they had a tornado that went, they tracked, this, they never tracked a one tornado this long, but they tracked one tornado 370 miles. And it just left devastation everywhere. And I think there were over 300 people killed. And they were interviewing some of the survivors. And nearly every one of them said the same thing. Their car is gone. Their house is gone. Everything they owned is gone but they still have their life, and that, that's what matters. You can rebuild, you can uh, buy other things, you can do all this, but this one black lady really said it. She says, uh, you can make other things, you can buy other things, but you only have one life. And she was thanking God right there on the news, on the, on the camera, that he spared her life. And I think this is just kind of a reminder for us we don't have to go through something like that to recognize what is really important, and it's not our things. One other thing I saw on the news was all this uh, falter all about the royal wedding. Now, you might be into that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being interested in the royal wedding. They showed this one lady that uh, she was just bonkers over it. She went there. Uh, her whole family went there, and her, her life's dream was to see this wedding and um, people have been camped out, and it's such a big deal. And I'm into royal weddings. I'm just not into this royal wedding, <laughs> if you get my dress. Okay, let's go to now Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. And what we're going to concentrate on tonight is what we just barely started last time. Now, we have a command, if the present active imperative, to stand firm. Now, we, we've looked at several verses 
that have to do with standing firm. There's a lot of information about it. But we're going to focus tonight, at least starting out, with the wrong way to stand firm. There's a right way and a wrong way to stand firm. So we're going to look at what not to do first. This is what we covered. I think we covered A, possibly B, and then we're going to, uh, that's review, and then we'll continue. Using or flaunting your superior knowledge of Bible doctrine in order to lord it over others. We are fortunate we have been able to exploit God's grace, to grow in that grace, in knowledge of His Word, and we have nothing to crow about. We can't take credit for this. Even the fact that you can understand the spiritual phenomenon of the Bible is because it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Really, the only thing that we throw into the mix is our own positive volition. And so we don't want to strut about and, and, and uh, flaunt that because that is not doing something out of love. And that's everything that we do should be done out of love. If you do that, it's a manifestation of power lust. It's a huge turnoff to others and drives them away from truth and grace. You want to be identified with humility and grace, not a strident attitude, a superior attitude. That goes nowhere in God's plan. And then arguing with unbelievers over non-essentials, this is, it just does no good whatsoever. And then I, I spent some time putting this sentence together, so I'm going to read it again. I don't know whether you like it, but I like it. Who cares if this is talking about unbelievers? Hunt Easter eggs, dress up like Santa Claus, or go trick-or-treating. What does it matter if they are drunkards or teetotalers? Whether they tithe or don't tithe, go to church or stay at home to watch cartoons? Whether they have been sprinkled or dunked? So what if women insist on wearing head coverings or refuse to wear pants? That would be in lieu of a skirt. So what if they allegedly speak in tongues or claim that they can supernaturally heal the sick? Now, we have to admit, when these issues come to the forefront and someone has the wrong take on them, we kind of strain at the reins. We want to straighten them out. We want to, oh boy, this would be a piece of cake to really show this person that they're in error. Whatever they believe about homosexuals, abortion, gun control, or politics does not matter. These people are on their way to hell. And the only spiritual thing they can understand is the gospel thanks to the Holy Spirit's ministry of common grace. Here's the thing. You can win an argument and lose a soul. Many times believers will get in some type of confrontation with either an unbeliever or a believer that is off course and they will just do a job on them. And they'll go away feeling real good about themselves. I really showed them. I showed them they were wrong. And the only thing that the person that they were belittling and lording it over, the only thing they could see was their arrogant attitude and didn't want to have anything to do with them. So the, the attitude is so important. Now, now we're plowing new ground here. Making a stand on a non-essential... Anytime a believer makes a big deal out of a non-essential, he makes the non-essential the issue and obscures the real issue. That's so important to understand. Because anytime you make something other than, especially if you're talking to an unbeliever, when you make anything other than the gospel and God's grace the issue, you failed. 
you've gotten off course. And so we have to live and let live. Even if they're wrong on so many fronts, we don't make that the issue. Because when we do, then it becomes the issue and the unbeliever needs to recognize that the issue for them is the gospel. It's not our job as Christians to point out every minor doctrinal error in other believers. God did not appoint us to be divine dictators, nor does He expect us to correct everyone else's thinking. That is His job. Now, I might put one provision in there, one, one thing that uh, is right in correcting the way someone thinks, and that is if you're in a position of authority, if you're especially a parent, you are to train your children in how they are to think. Uh, and, and if you are uh, in an advisory uh, or an authoritative position, sometimes it's necessary to do that. But we are to not major on the minors. Let it go. Now, here's a few verses. Here's one that a fairly long um, scripture here, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22. For though I am free from all men... Now, of course, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and what we see here is the doctrine of liberty or the law of liberty. We are free to do a lot of things that others might think we should uh, be restricted. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. He's talking about restricting his freedom and his liberty. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. You, you understand what he's saying. When he would go into a group of people or maybe into a household, a family, and they were still observing the Mosaic law, he wouldn't go in and flaunt his liberty. He would go along with whatever they were doing, whatever, however they were restricted and observing the Mosaic law, he would go along and do it. Now, why did he do that? Because he was not going to make a non-essential the issue. So he says, to those who are under the law, I behaved as under the law, though he himself was not under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What he's saying now, he would go to a Jewish house and they were observing the Mosaic law. He would observe it right along with them. If he went to a Gentile house and they were eating pork, he would, oh, no, no, I can't do that. As to those who were not under the law, for instance, Gentiles, he wouldn't make that an issue. This is what he's explaining to us. So that even though, he, this is interesting, he says, but under, he was under the law of Christ. We are under the law of liberty. We are not under the Mosaic law. But that doesn't mean we're lawless. Actually, we have a higher law that we adhere to. Because the Mosaic law said, you shall not fornicate. Uh, you shall not uh, uh, take, a, take a woman outside of marriage. 
And they could live by the letter of the law and still be lusting. And what does Christ say? He said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already fornicated with her in your heart. See, that's a higher law. But we're not under the Mosaic law. We don't have those over 600 uh, rules and regulations to live by. Verse 22, he says, To the weak I have become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become, listen to this, all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Important to remember. Because we come in contact with all types of people. Missionaries really need to focus on this. Because if a missionary is immature, they will go into a country and the first thing they'll start doing is making issues out of non-issues. They might make issues out of the way people dress. They might make issues out of certain uh, traditions or customs that the people practice. When what they really need to do is essentially ignore all that and like a laser beam, focus on the gospel. And then later on, after the people are saved, then maybe move on to other issues, but let the Word do it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Now, I'm going to read Galatians 2, 3 through 5. Maybe you should turn to this because I'm going to link it with another verse. And if you link this in your Bible, then you'll be able to make this same comparison and come to the same conclusion that I'm going to show you now. And it's going to the Scriptures to make a point. It's not just deducing something. We're using actual scriptures that will force us to a conclusion. And it has to do with using common sense and not majoring in the minors and being able to relate to people. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, let me set this up. Paul had gone to Jerusalem and he had, uh, he had been trained by Jesus Christ himself. But you know what his history was. You know what his reputation was. And so there were people who were skeptical of him. And Paul was going to be a missionary or an apostle to the Gentiles. And right off the bat, he was challenged and he was threatened. And they said, you're going out saying things that aren't so, that you're saying that Gentiles can be saved also and without being circumcised. And that became a major issue with regards to the gospel. Now, with that in mind, we'll go to verse 3. Paul is saying, But not even Titus, who was with me when he went to Jerusalem, though he was a Greek, that means he was a Gentile. That's code for meaning he was not circumcised. Was compelled to be circumcised. And the, they didn't do it, but they were saying, they were making an issue of it. They were saying, he can't be saved. He can't be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ unless he is going to be circumcised, and you better do it. Verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty. What does he know about liberty? They were free not to be circumcised. Titus didn't have to be circumcised once he became a Christian because he's not under the Mosaic law. He is free from that. But there were these false teachers, these 
Judaizers that came in, look at it, secretly to spy out their liberty. In other words, I don't know how to put this. Uh, I'll put it as delicately, delicately as I can. Um, the fact that he was a Jew was not absolute proof that he was uncircumcised because um, there were people who that was being practiced in certain areas and certain people did that whether they were Jews or not. When they were secretly brought in and to spy out our liberty, this is I'm just going to give you a speculation here, but it will relate what I'm talking about. No doubt some of these Judaizers that were trying to catch them on some technicality to discredit Paul would make sure that when Titus went to use the urinal, they were right next to him. And they were trying to spy out and get ammunition so that they could discredit Paul for having someone who was uncircumcised. Do you understand what this is meaning here? The guys know. I don't know what the ladies do, but you can figure it out. Um, you know, nowadays they have a lot of places advertisement. You go into a restroom and there was a urinal there and they have over it an advertisement or a menu or something like that. No, they, yeah, they have, and I think it's a, I think it's a good idea because other else, what are you doing? You're sitting there staring at a tile wall or something, you know, just, you know. Well, I digress. Uh, anyway, they didn't have those advertisements and they had wandering eyes. Let me put it that way. So, verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. What's the issue here? The gospel. And they had made the fact that Paul was accompanied by one of his fellow communicators who was not circumcised and they were going to make that the issue in order to really twist the gospel into something that it was not. And Paul was wise and he says, not for an hour, not for a moment. We did not submit to this. And this is the right thing that you don't submit or let anything pass when the gospel is at stake, when the grace of God is at stake. You got that one. Now, Right there where you are in your Bible, I want you to write this next verse, which is Acts 16, 1 through 3. Because we're going to see, again, the same issue addressed, but Paul is going to, to act in a completely different way. So we're comparing Acts 16, 1 through 3 with... 1 Corinthians, um, excuse me, Galatians 2, 3 through 5. So here's Acts 16, 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So this was a... Um, a man that was a believer, he had a Jewish mother and his father was a Greek and he was well spoken of in the areas that Paul was going to. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him 
because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He was a believer. These were immature believers still at this point that were in Derby and Lystra. And the fact that this believer had a Greek father would strongly suggest maybe that he was not circumcised. And if he would have gone there and made an issue of circumcision and said there's no way that we're going to circumcise this man, he would have made a non-essential and essential. You see the difference? He was going to go there and no one had made an issue out of the, out of the circumcision. And Paul certainly wasn't going to do it because he wanted to have their ear. Now, if he would have, if he would have said, no way, we're not under the law. I'm not going to circumcise this man just to please them. And he went in there and he tried to teach them and he tried to save those that were un unbelievers and train those. What would have happened? He would have been a failure because they would have made it an issue. The issue would have been that this man was not circumcised. In one situation, it was proper and correct to be inflexible. In this situation, the same issue being circumcision, he acted completely different because he was not going to make a non-essential and essential that would cloud his ministry and the gospel. That would have the same thing to do with religious or, or I should say maybe holiday traditions. When you start making holiday traditions the issue, then you cloud the issue unless someone else has made that an issue of holiday tradition and, and connected it to the gospel in some way. Okay? Was Paul being a hypocrite? Absolutely not. He was using great discernment. He was inflexible in Jerusalem when the issue was works versus grace, but flexible when it came to gaining the ear of legalistic people in order that they might be saved. Discernment. Discernment is what is sorely lacking so often. And discernment comes with spiritual maturity. And we have examples. I'm giving them to you so that we won't major in the minors. Okay, number three is, now remember, what I'm giving you is the way not to stand firm. Except for these two scriptures here. I was giving them to you as a, a comparison so you could understand the principle. I label this the soapbox in the pulpit. No one needs to get on a soapbox or get behind a pulpit to stand for the truth. Orations and pontifications are not necessary. In fact, they are counterproductive. People tend to tune out when someone tries to dominate a conversation. And we can do that. I mean, this is easy to pick out when someone else is, is doing it. But when you have a chance to wax eloquent on a doctrine that you really have nailed, it's tempting to just take the floor. And some people even get in a different mood, or not a mood, but mode nearly. Uh, I, there's this one person, 
And they don't go to this church. Most of you don't even know who they are, and it doesn't matter who they are. But this person, when I am around them, and they start talking about spiritual things, their whole demeanor changes. And their, the way they talk changes. They get very breathy when they're talking about the Word of God. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating either. And they don't do that intentionally. They revere the Word of God. But it is a huge turnoff to me. I can't even hardly listen to what they're saying because of the way they're saying it. Some people take on an air of superiority when they know that they have this doctrine nailed and they're talking to someone and they're coming across dogmatically, which there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to be careful that you're not talking in a condescending way to someone. We always have to be very aware of the other people and what they're, what they're thinking, how, are they, how they're either responding or reacting to what we say. The most effective way to reach someone is through a dialogue, not a monologue. Today we, we think of the monologue as a late night comic that does, uh, tells jokes before they begin. They call that a monologue. But a monologue isn't necessarily talking about uh, jokes and doing a, a routine. It just means you're the only one talking. That's what a monologue is. But the best way to talk to someone is in a dialogue. If one person is doing all the talking, it's not a conversation. Many see it as a speech or a lecture that they'd rather not hear. You parents, if you have a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. Teenagers need monologues to a degree because they, they need to, to listen and they don't want to listen. Especially, I think by the time you reach the age 16, I don't know, I'm just going through my prior experience. When you have a child that reaches 16, they are hard to talk to because they know everything. They know everything about everything. And when you try to tell them something, what they are inclined to do is roll their eyes. Well, have you ever, I don't know where the expression came from. Oh, brother. Oh, brother. Where the, why is it not old sister? I never heard it said old sister. It's always old brother. What, you're telling me something I don't know? Dialogue. And you need to watch people's body language. If you're coming across as it's a speech or a lecture, people don't want to hear an unsolicited speech or lecture. And it, does, it doesn't degrade into that if it's a dialogue. Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together says the Lord. Reasoning together is what? A dialogue or a monologue? It's a dialogue. I think I want to use an expression that I may have used before, but I learned through some very 
great sales training when I was in the log home business about dialogue. Before I was trained in sales, I thought when someone came through the door, you're supposed to spill your guts. Now, let me explain spill your guts. I, of course, that's not literally. But I thought if I could tell them all the wonderful things about my product, they couldn't help but buy. And I was the one doing all the talking. I didn't even know who I was talking to. It should have dawned on me one time. A guy came in, and I was so happy to see a customer. And I went up there, and I gave him my best sell pitch, and it took about 10 minutes. And when he was done, I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, he said, I just came in here to get in the air conditioning. My, my wife is down there in Chapel Hill buying antiques, and I thought I'd be able to rest here. And then I rolled my eyes. <laughs> but it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. And it's the same way in the spiritual realm. Sometimes we think if we can just blurt it all out, just get it, get it all out, something's going to stick. Usually it doesn't. And it's a huge turnoff to people. Here's some of the don'ts. See, the reason together, that's the dialogue. That's just talking to someone. Here's some of the don'ts. First don't. Don't let a conversation degenerate into an argument. If you get to the point to where it's tis so, tis not, tis so, tis not, tis so, tis not, it's not going anywhere. You've hit a brick wall, and it should have never gotten to that point anyway. And this is hard for somebody, uh, some people to accept because when you're right, you're right. And for some people, that's all that matters. But being right in this situation isn't the most important thing. You can be right and be wrong. You can be right and try to pressure someone and try to force the issue. And even though you're right in your doctrine, you're wrong in your method. Two, don't appear to be superior. Nobody likes to talk to a know-it-all. If someone has something to say, you might be talking to maybe a believer that's a, a believer that is growing, maybe a, a baby believer or maybe a, a adult, an adolescent believer, and they start telling you about something that they've learned. I've seen this happen. I've seen another believer that was had more knowledge but not necessarily maturity, and they would cut that person off when they're trying to express something that they've learned. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. Now, let, let's talk about what I want to talk about. I mean, they didn't say that, but that's what they did. And I'm thinking, here is a believer that is so proud that they learned something and they aren't expressing it to another believer. And that believer cuts them off because it's all old hat to them. It's routine. And trying to try to change the subject onto what they want to talk about. That is not a pretty sight. So do we, we don't want to appear superior. Nobody likes to talk to a know-it-all. See, don't preach to them or talk to them in a condescending manner. It's, typical, it's similar to what I just said. You may be talking to someone and you just learned a particular doctrine and you're expressing it to them. And, and they say, oh yeah, I learned that back when I was uh, still a teenager in Sunday school. What is that? That's an insult, isn't it? 
are sometimes we just it, it's not what I want you to understand. It's not just what we say. It's how we say it. We have to be ever mindful not to offend someone. Because knowledge can puff up and we can come across as a puffed up, pompous believer. D. Don't tell them you're wrong. Have you ever told somebody that was embraced a false doctrine or something that was wrong and you, you said, you're wrong. You like to be told you're wrong? Hmm? You're wrong. No. That puts them on a defensive and they are more likely to argue with you. Let them see for themselves that they are wrong by the questions you ask them. And we'll get to questions quickly in a moment. Lead them, persuade them in a way that they can see it for themselves. But don't you blurt it out and don't you say that they're wrong. Because usually when you tell someone they're wrong, what they see, okay, it's a contest. And I'm insulted. I don't like anybody to think I'm wrong. And I'm not going to, even if I am wrong, I'm not going to let them know it. We're, that has no place in standing firm for truth. E, don't push it. Whoop. Uh, don't push. If a person rejects what you say, don't pressure them. It is the Holy Spirit that will convict them of the truth, not you. And sometimes when you're... Have you ever been in a, I don't know, let, let's say an animated discussion with someone over doctrine and they are on the wrong side. Now that's a euphemistic way of saying you're in a heated conversation. Your emotions, both of, on both sides, the emotions have stirred. And it's very easy for you to try to push our pressure. You can't win anything by pressure. All you can do is give them the facts, give them the truth, and let the Holy Spirit do the rest, convict them. Don't take rejection personally. This is why a lot of people never stand firm for the faith because if they, don't, if they don't ever make a stand, they won't ever be confronted and they won't ever be rejected. Our job is to stand firm for the truth. We are not responsible for the negative volition of others. And if they reject you and try to belittle you and maybe even scorn you, you should wear it as a badge of honor, not holding your head in rejection. You're not respect, re responsible for their rejection. Okay, here's the right way to stand firm. Are you ready? Huh? Oh, I thought y'all had that. I've got to look at my mirror up there. Okay, uh, the right way to stand firm, number one, questions. Number, number A of questions. How can you address an issue with someone properly if you don't know what they think about it? You can't, can you? How many times have you engaged in conversation about an issue, especially if it has to do with the Bible, and you're starting to wax eloquent, and you don't even know what they think about the issue that you're discussing? B. That was A. This is B. How can you find out what a person thinks about an issue unless you ask them? I could put a corollary to this. Wouldn't you agree that the best way to find out is to ask them? I have taken for granted before that a person thought a certain way about an issue, maybe because they belong to a certain denomination. 
And that certain denomination has a certain mindset and they believe a certain way. And I think, well, surely these people do and come to find out that they didn't. So before you set off on any kind of uh, strategy or conversation, you need to find out what they think about it. The best way to do that is to ask them. See, what is a better way to keep someone engaged in a conversation than asking them questions? I don't know of a better way, do you? If you're... If you, are talking to someone, you're trying to stand firm for the faith on some issue, and you're the one doing all the talking, there's probably only one person also listening, and that would be you, and you're listening to yourself. People tend to tune out if you're doing all the talking. So the best way to engage them is to what? Ask them questions. It keeps them awake. It keeps them alert. E, isn't it better to ask someone? Uh, isn't it better to ask someone what his beliefs are, what they're based on, rather than to preach or lecture him on what you believe? Do you get? Um, I want you to think about these. You might have noticed these are all questions. Hmm? Look at all those question marks. First of all, is there a better way to get people to think than asking them questions? I would say no. Isn't it better to ask someone what his beliefs are and what they're based on rather than trying to preach or lecture him on what you believe? Isn't that what, we're, what we tend to do? Issue, baptism comes up. What do we want to do? We want to throw out all the seven baptisms. We want to tell them the difference between a real and ritual baptism. We want to talk about all these things and really not even know for sure where he stands. So the best thing to do is to what? Find out what his beliefs are based on rather than to preach to him. Here's what I found is that when you ask someone what that their belief is based on, many times they go blank. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Not long ago, we had the Lent deal. And people have ashes on their forehead. What if you ask a person, or let me put it this way. Let's say that you're in line at HEB, this happened, and there's a person there that has Lent, I mean, um, ashes. <laughs> they have ashes on their head. And you walk up to them and you start pontificating about grace versus works and all this. And you haven't even asked them why they do it. This is what I want you to see. Most of the time they do it because that's what everybody else is doing. They go to a church. Everybody does it there. Their parents do it. Their brothers and sisters do it. Everybody does it. So that's why they're doing it. Now, if you, before you said anything and you went up there and you said you saw the lint there, I mean, excuse me, the ashes there, and you said, why did you put ashes on there? And watch them. They might be caught like a deer in the headlights. They don't know what to think. They're doing it because that's what everybody else does. does. And they might say, well, that's what, that's what we do at our church. If they said that, if they said, if you said, why do you have ashes on your forehead? And they said, well, 
This is what we do at, your, at our church. What should be your next question? Yeah, I was going to show you. But why, M. Singer, why? Why? And then watch. The reason they told you that's what they do at their church because they don't know why they do it. They're just following the herd. If you did nothing more than ask them that, you've accomplished your mission. You know why? Because you got them to think. And you did it by asking a question. That's what questions do. It forces people to think. And these days, most people don't think, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. They follow the line of least resistance. If they can be better thought of in their family, if they put ashes on their head, they're going to do it every year. And the real reason is because they want to be accepted. They don't know any theological grounds behind it. And if you ask the questions, they might find out that's a pretty silly thing to do. What if, what if their family or what if a church said, we're all going to get a big brand right here. We're going to get a big tattoo that says C right here for Christ. Are you going to do it? Because they do it? Well, a lot of people would. Why wouldn't you do that? Because you want to find out why, did, why was it done in the first place? I had a good friend that was uh, uh, filled in for our pastor. He was, uh, he was officiating at a, at a um, christening where, you know, where they baptized the baby. And I asked him, why? What, 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 is, what was it about? Oh, it was about how you hold the baby. I said, no, not the method. What was, what was the purpose behind it? And he looked at me like, what? And he waited a long time and he said, this was his answer. He was filling in for a pastor at a christening, and his answer was this. I don't know. I'm not a baptismal expert. That was his answer to me. And I'm thinking, why would somebody do that? And he felt very comfortable in it. So here's the, here's the point. It's better to ask someone what his beliefs are based on. Anytime someone comes out with a false doctrine, Ashley is here. She's heard me say it a hundred times with the young people's class. First thing you do is, Where'd you get that idea? Where did that come from? And more times than not, that will get them to start thinking and will go further than this about anything else. F. Most people state their position on an issue they've never even thought through and have never challenged and, and are never challenged or questions about it. Especially in the spiritual realm. Wouldn't a person be more open to the truth if he or she were forced to answer questions about the position they've taken and can't defend? Just by simply asking a question means that they have to defend that. And you understand what I'm saying. Somebody says, oh, you have to be baptized. You have to be water baptized to be saved. And rather than saying, you, you're wrong. You do not. And you, you, know, you get into all but swinging at one another. Why not just ask them, where did you get that idea? And if you just try this, I assure you, most of the time that is enough to disarm them and they don't even know why. That's backed up on what? Sometimes, oh, sometimes they will say, oh, the, the Bible says so. What would be your next response? Right, where? I mean, you're not being combative. You just want to know. Anytime you make an assertion, it has to be backed by something. And when you say where, 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, 
What? I don't know. It's somewhere in there. Well, that's just an opinion. It's not backed by the Word of God, and they know it when you ask them those questions. So ask people, what is it by? Don't be bashful about asking them. You're just, you have every right when someone says something, especially if it has something to do of a spiritual nature or salvation, to ask them, where did that come from? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you have information that I need to know. I might be going to hell because I don't have your information. I want to know where it's based, where it's backed, because if it's backed by the Bible, I need to know it. That should be your attitude, not one of combativeness. You just want to know. Gee, when someone makes a statement that is incorrect and you question him about it, he is obligated to defend his statement. Is that not true? If I said... The prince tomorrow at the wedding is going to wear Bermuda shorts. If I made that statement and I said it dogmatically, wouldn't you want to know, where did you get that information? I mean, maybe it's going to be true. Who knows? But, I mean, and it's only, its merit is going to be linked to the source where it came from. Now, if I was honest, I'd say, well, I just made that up right out of thin blue air. I mean, out of the... Out of the blue. It just came right out of thin air. I just made that up. And if most people were honest, when they say something dogmatically about a spiritual thing, that's what they're doing. If you said, where did that came from? come from? They would say, well, I just made it up. I thought it sounded pretty good. If they were honest. But they're not honest and they, you know, try to camouflage. If he can't defend it, he will be more open to the truth and listen to what you have to say. Doesn't that seem to be a better approach than telling him everything you know about the Bible and hoping something sticks? Isn't that what we're inclined to do, though? An issue comes up and someone has taken the wrong side and we are soldiers for Christ. We're ready to do battle. Let's get in their face. Let's throw all the doctrines we know, all the Scriptures we know, and surely that's going to win the day. And what you can do is win a battle and lose a soul. Engage them. Ask them, where did it come from? Get them, if nothing else, you get them to think, and nobody's thinking anymore. They're just parroting phrases. They're just saying things that they've heard. They're observing rituals that they've always done, and they don't have a clue why. Are you going to remember to... Uh, remember the importance of asking questions the next time you have an opportunity to stand for the truth? I just thought I'd throw that in as my last question. I've seen it happen. I've seen mature believers that have a ton of doctrine have some be at a, a circumstance where an issue would come up. It seems like a person goes to such and such church and an issue comes up where they're wrong on an issue and that mature believer will take airwaves and dominate until that other person is just reeling. He's back on his, he's like this. And really nothing has been accomplished other than that person is thinking, Whew, I'm glad they're gone as soon as you leave. That will not happen if you ask questions and engage them in a conversation. Here's the last part here. Attitude. We're talking about things the right way to stand firm for the faith. Remain humble and objective. 
We can't afford to take offense or get angry even if a person says something that is offensive to us. We are in spiritual combat and you become a casualty when you get angry or offended. What do you expect? They're unbelievers or they're a believer who either, either doesn't have doctrine or they're not applying it. So why are you going to get all so offended? And when I say y'all, I'm talking about myself as well because it's easy to do. If someone says something that is especially against your sacred cow, uh, you have one particular thing that you really appreciate the most and they disparage it, then you want to take offense. Don't do it. B, we must always treat people in a loving way. People are moved more by your concern and consideration for them than they are by how much knowledge you may have. People don't care that much about how much you know. What they care about is, do you care about them? We are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.14 The people who disagree with you, whether they are believers or unbelievers, are not your enemies. And they have a right to their opinion. You are not to belittle them or disparage them in any way. You are to lovingly persuade them to accept the truth based on the evidence, power, and reasonableness of God's Word. That's our job. And we can do that in a conversation, and it's done best by asking questions. The next time you get to talk to someone about an issue that is meaningful, especially if it has something to do with the Bible, doctrine, spiritual matters, I don't see how you can do a job as well if you don't ask them questions. Really listen to what the other person has to say and keep an open mind. There is a possibility that you could learn something from them or that you might be wrong. You might be wrong. Has that ever happened to you? Well, you never had a conversation. You just button heads. I like to listen to people because sometimes I think I'm going to teach them something and it winds up, winds, winds up that I'm learning something. And you can't do that until you're really listening. Really listening. Are you listening? Really listening is not waiting for them to shut up so you can have your turn. Really listening is not formulating your next time to speak, what you're going to say. That's not really listening. I've caught myself. Have you done this before? I've caught myself doing that. And I'm, I know what my next thing. I heard what they said. I've got my, my response formulated. I'm ready to say it. And then I really started listening and I forgot what it was. Have you ever done that? That's a good thing. That means you're actually listening to them. And you might, I can't tell from y'all's expression if you ever get into these things. I, you're human, I guess you do. But you need to really listen to people because you, they, if you're really listening, they're going to give you clues and keys as to where they itch so that you will know where to scratch. And who knows, we could be wrong. I have learned things from Benny Hinn. I know you're all doing this. Oh, oh, no mercy. 
You have to filter out a lot. But he has said things I thought, hmm, I've never heard anybody say that. I checked it out and he was right. So I learned. Now, I'm not suggesting you start turning in and buying all of Billy Hinn's material. I'm just trying to make a point. Listen to people. You can learn from them and you never know. They might be right and you might be wrong. It happens. I think this is the last one. Let's see. Yeah, here's my last point. If you have no success in reaching someone, let go, back off. There are times that we must agree, and that might be very important. Maybe you'll be hand truth. If will never, if it's a, there was a time with we caught our, uh, the truck about an hour before we got there to, to go to work, and we hardly agreed on anything. And so many times I had to say, well. In time, we're going to find out if you're right or I'm wrong, or I'm right or you're wrong. But there's also the potential we're both wrong, but we both can't be right because we had differences. And that way, they kept talking to me. And after a time, that rapport matured, and they would confide in me and say, I hate going house to house. They were honest with me. They they would make sure. They wouldn't say that when the others were around, but they would look around and say, I hate going house to house. It's against my personality and my nature. I feel like I'm intruding on people. And, of course, I said, well, it's great not to have to do that because I can't do anything to lose my salvation. And the reason they do it, they're afraid if they don't do it, they're going to hell. What a horrible bondage. So I hope these things will help you when you're standing firm for the faith. You're going to have opportunity probably sooner than you think. If you ask questions and are humble and just talk to these folks and have a dialogue with them, I think it's going to be more successful. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus on how we are to stand firm. We all have tendencies to go off the the best track of reaching people, and there is no canned speech. There is no particular method. It seems like questions really help. But we are to have true love and concern for these people and treat them in grace the same way that you treat us. And I think that we're going to be much more successful in doing so. And the Holy Spirit will be able to convict them and bring them into the fold. We pray that this will be the case, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.